You're listening to The Mumbrella Cast. The Mumbrella Cast. Hello and welcome to The Mumbrella Cast. I'm Damien Francis. This week, Mumbrella founder and editor-at-large Tim Burrows speaks to one of the most notable names in the Australian media and marketing industry, Simon Reynolds. Yes, that's Simon with two eyes, and yes, he was the mastermind of the famous Grim Reaper campaign. Don't know it? Search for it on YouTube. It is a must-see. After more than a decade away, he's back in the industry. Tim finds out why, and a lot more, right now. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Tim Burrows. Most people who leave Australia's advertising industry are quickly forgotten, but not Simon Reynolds. It's about 14 years since he stepped away, but he's still talked about. And now he's returned to the marketing world as chair of social e-commerce platform Buyer's Circle. Now, Simon, welcome back. We, we will talk about what you've been up to since leaving Adland, but let's start with your latest role. What is Buyer's Circle? Well, Buyer's Circle is an absolutely fascinating company based on a company in China, Pinduo Duo, which frankly I had never heard of and, until uh, the guys from uh, Buyer's Circle came to, to talk with me. But Pinduo Duo is amazing. It's only five years old and it's already bigger, uh, has more monthly users than Alibaba. So it gets 720 million um, monthly users. And Buyer's Circle, is an Australian version of that. So what does it do? Well, it uses something called social selling. So most selling sold from websites. And with Buyer Circle, what happens is it's sold through connections on social media. So you don't need to set up a website. If you're an e-tailer, you just grab hold of this stuff and send it through social media. Now, up till now, it's been the Chinese-Australian community. So there's uh, incredibly, there's already 687,000 users of it, uh, 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 of Buyer Circle, and it's expanding into the, into, into, the, into the Caucasian market in Australia and beyond. And uh, how did it come about that you became involved? Because clearly, um, this is significant involvement. You're, 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 you're chairman of the board, which, which means that if not a full-time job, you're certainly all in in driving the success of the business. So how did it happen? And I, I presume you're not short of offers. So what was it about this one that decided this is the one for you to get involved in? Well, I, I, I'm not executive, so I'm, I'm not full-time. And I have been, what a lot of people don't know is I have been and still are a director of a Melbourne ad agency called DPR, which is also non-executive. So I help help those guys out, incredible agency, doing extremely well. And uh, as it so happens, I, I know quite a few people in the capital raising area of, of Australia. So, you know, uh, for a long time, I've been involved in, in capital raisings, private companies, public companies and, and stuff. And so I knew uh, a couple of the VCs and they approached me and said, look, we've been funding uh, uh, this company or investing in this company, by a Circle. It's growing really fast and it probably needs uh, uh, a chairman to potentially uh, uh, package it uh, succinctly to the market, to the public and who understands marketing, but who also understands uh, public companies, which, which by a Circle will one day be. Yeah, I was going to ask, actually, do you see a route to the to the ASX or one of the other markets? Yeah, I, I think so. We, we are just completing a, a 5 million round of raising and then 
probably before the end of the year, we'll raise again. And then maybe at the end of next year, we might list. But, you know, it's so hard to tell the, w- the way the markets are at, at the moment. You know, it, who knows what date it will be. But, it, but it's, uh, it's in the future of the company. It's definitely, definitely an intention. So speaking of listed companies, um, you, certainly in terms of visibility, you left the industry in November 2007 when you resigned as a director of Photon Group, which is known as an aero these days. Uh, that was uh, still flying high on the ASX at that point. Um, and it um, certainly looking back at the reporting of your exit at the time, the word surprise was used. Um, what made you step away? Were you were you stepping away from the advertising world, or were you stepping towards something else? What was going on for you at the time? Yeah, great question. Well, uh, that was uh, you know the height of the uh, of the stock market at, at the time, and I think Photon was valued at five hundred million uh, at the time. And I was getting uh, moving further and further away from the company. You know, they had uh, uh, it was driven by this guy uh, Tim Hughes. And uh, who was really a money market guy? He was Reg Grundy's um, uh, uh, primary money manager, or, or one of the two money managers. And uh, it was becoming a long, a, a long way away from advertising. You, you know, I started as a copywriter, and he, this was a company uh, with fifty-four companies in fourteen countries, and and it really wasn't, uh, you know, my kind of gig. Uh, uh, after a while, and and you know, I kind of you know, like yourself, I spent my life working hard and I just wanted, wanted a break. So I took a year off, off, off to write a book and, and, and then the stock market crash happened. You know, it's, um, uh, I got out at the right time, but then Photon suffered, you know, uh, pretty fiercely. But what's really interesting is in its uh, current incarnation and era, I mean, that's still worth over 200 million on the, on the stock market. You know, it's still a, a strong marketing services uh, group. And, uh, uh, but since then, I wouldn't even know who's on the board. I mean, I'm, I'm completely disconnected. Yeah, look, it must have been uh, it must have been a strange experience, sort of. Yeah, watching this thing that you'd helped build, you know, c- c- come out the other side of the GFC. So you'd at least been wise enough to um, uh, to exit your your investment as well, had you by that point. Well, certainly a lot of it, not all of it, um, but uh, uh, a lot of it. And you know, it was such a bizarre time at that point because uh you know people forget but people were questioning whether australian banks would survive that's how fierce that the gfc was in our country and and uh it was a good time to be out of it i can i can tell you i wouldn't have been uh, wanted to be in any of those meetings and we seem to be having a sort of almost like a second wave of local holding companies or certainly the ambitions for them. You know, we we saw the growth ops uh, sort of roll up a little while back. We, we've we now got Cam Murchison out of New Zealand with Ativo. You've got Ben Lilly doing it with McCann. You've got Simon Ryan to do it with, trying to do it with Ryan Cap. Um, do you think inherently that sort of... Uh, service company model works um could it could it happen again do you think well i think it it could certainly happen again but in in order to make those kind of companies go you've really got to have deep connections with investors so the thing about tim hughes was he really knew the investors i mean if you look at now uh uh jeff wilson uh, David Paradise, the superstars of the Australian investment world, 
they rented space in in Tim's office floor. You know, like they everybody was so close. And so his ability to raise capital was absolutely incredible. I don't know uh, these other companies, how good their ability to raise capital is, but that's half the job is just continuously ra- raising. We were, we'd raised hundreds of millions of dollars to, to buy companies. So that's one part of it. And then the other part of those groups that people have got to um, take, you know, be careful to watch is they, they promise synergies. They promise uh, all these cost savings and we're going to send our clients over to this company and they're going to give them, you know, we'll all profit from each other. And I think that's hard to pull off. People don't want to send their clients over to the other company that the the holding companies uh, got. They don't particularly want to uh, uh, interact that much with those other companies. So it's a difficult thing to, to pull off and get any advantage beyond the actual companies as individual companies. And, you know, if this was a finance uh, and investing uh, podcast, we could go deep into that. But, you know, it's a, it's, we'll leave it at the, the fact that it's a challenge, I guess. Well, you invest a bit yourself as well, I know. Do you, do you have a thesis for what you look for when you invest in something? Well, look, I, look, I'd love to, uh, uh, you know, you're very kind to, to say that whether I'm intelligent enough to have a thesis about in, in, investing. Um, I, I can say going forward, I think it's going to be hard to lose uh, your, your money investing in a group of SaaS companies. I, I think the, the tectonic shift that's occurring, as I'm sure you know, is that, you know, the rise of, the, of, uh, of software as a service. And, and so really to jump on that boat, to, to take a diversified a position with a lot of SaaS companies, I think, in the next five years is 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 going to be a pretty pretty safe bet. Um, you know, you've got to pick the right ones, of course. But uh, look, to me, it, it's it, everybody talks about the changing nature of industries, etc. But it really comes down to this: Are, are you one of the first in a market? Do you have people that really uh, uh, leaders that work hard and and can drive a company forward? And I think as long as you're uh, doing those two things, you've got a really good chance of, of having a growing company and, and a company worth investing in. And at what stage do you usually invest? What stage of the company? Yeah, no, normally uh, um, uh, they've got some revenue. So they might have a, a, a million in revenue, two million in revenue, and, and, and they're growing, growing fast with a, with a clear point of difference. Now, um, uh, changing the subject to the the creative side of your of your working life, because I suppose that's one of the interesting things about you is the fact that you have both a creative mind and a and a business brain. Um, so you were, uh, and I'm sure you, you you won't go an interview without having it pointed out that you were uh, involved in one of the most famous public health campaigns of all time, the Grim Reaper, which was warning about the dangers of HIV and AIDS. Now, as we're recording this, um, Australia is really facing a real problem around covid vaccine hesitancy um if that was your brief how would you think about the challenge well i mean that's a great question i i i I think that uh it's crazy that they haven't gone hard on you've you've got to get the vaccine you know the in the last 10 days, as of the time of recording, it's become apparent that it's a problem that people don't have vaccines. But if we go back three weeks, uh, a lot of people, in fact, 30% of Australia, uh, had no intention of getting the vaccine. Such was the, 
the 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 feeling that we had nothing to worry about anymore. Uh, but I, I would definitely do maybe not the Grim Reaper, but I would definitely do a hardcore version to wake people up. That this thing could easily be around for another year, it could be around for another two. It could, you know, the the different strains become more sophisticated as as we know, and 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 become more dangerous. I think the problem is is where the parallel is with the original AIDS campaign thirty years ago is is no one knew anybody, or most people didn't know anybody who had AIDS. You know, the, certainly the heterosexual community uh, didn't. It was it was either gays or it was I, uh, IV drug users largely in Australia that got AIDS. But it's kind of similar here. Like how many people actually know someone who's got COVID in Australia? Not many. And as a result of that, uh, everybody's just not believing that it's going to be particularly a problem for them. Now, there's two things that an ad campaign's got to do, you know, uh, speaking to someone who knows more about it than me, but it's got to inform and it's got to persuade. The problem is with the government advertising now is it's only informing, you know, it's only, you know, making statements about things. It's not tugging the heart in any way. It's not affecting us emotionally. It's not persuading particularly in any any way other than just like a, a you know, someone reading off, off an autocue. It's just a very low level of, of, of marketing in my opinion. And um, what are the... What are the levers one should think about pulling with a campaign like this? Is it about self-interest or is it about doing the right thing or is there no actual right answer? I, I don't have much faith in the doing the right thing thing. It's a bit like, you know, for the environment. We'll do a little bit. We'll put it in a different bin, uh, you know, a rubbish in a different bin. But are we really, is the average person really going to do much? I, I'm not sure the average person is. To me, it's about... Um, two things it's first of all letting people see how painful COVID is and then getting people to talk about it who people actually want to listen to so a classic example uh, of a potential ad in my view is to get pink to lead the campaign so what a lot of people don't know is she almost died from COVID so she's someone that anyone under 50, a lot of people under 50 are going to listen to. They're going to watch an ad with Pink talking to them. And she was in such pain that she rewrote her will for her children during during the time she had COVID because she thought she was going. Now, if you got a series of people that actually had it talk about how bad it is, then I think you could wake a lot of people up. Now, what a lot of people are saying is get celebrities, but celebrities isn't it. I mean, you know, every second Rolex ad has some celebrity holding a Rolex and is anyone persuaded by that? I, I, I don't think so. But get celebrities who have been crushed by COVID and then you've got an ad campaign. Hmm. Um, speaking of the advertising world, um, you've been lucky enough to cross paths with some of the biggest names, certainly in Australian advertising history. Uh, you worked for John Singleton. You uh, employed a young David Droger. Um, you crossed paths with the likes of Ted Horton um, and, and others. Um, which advertising practitioners do you, do you admire? Well, I mean, I, I have to be honest that um, most of the people I admire, admire, I grew up admiring people in the in the UK ad industry. Uh, you know, I was in the 90s, that was just the hottest place on earth. And guys like Dave Trott from Gold Greenless Trot or David Abbott or, uh, you know, these these 
Ligas Delaney, Tim Delaney. These were people that, you know, I, I wouldn't say worship, but not far off. I mean, I, I can literally repeat end lines uh, that they wrote from 30 years ago because they're so embedded. In, I studied those ads so deeply. And and, and so they, they're the people that I, I, I really most ad, admired. Um, but of the people you you mentioned, you know, they're, they're fascinating characters. Dave, you know, we, um, we hired him as a junior writer. Uh, he had a few months out. He topped awards school. He had a few months out. He's a tremendous guy. He's a really good person. Uh, I, I have a, a lot of time for him. And uh, what's fascinating about Dave is that usually when a, a junior writer starts, they're bad. And there's fragments of of good in them that gets them the job. What was so amazing about Dave is that even six months into the industry, he was excellent. Uh, he wasn't perfect, but he was excellent. And um, that, that was very unusual. And then, of course, he had the work ethic uh, that that goes with it, you know. So so much of Australian advertising up to the point when we started Oman and and a, a, you know a couple of other agencies at the same time was about coming up with a good idea, and the switch where which guys like David Droger embodied and certainly our agency embodied at the time was to come up with a lot of ideas, and then pick the the very best in rather than go to lunch. Very much the UK work ethic, you know, the Tim Delaney work all day, work all night type of work ethic. So Dave matched the his talent with with work. Um, Ted Horton, uh, an incredible guy, because uh, there used to be two schools of advertising. I, I don't know if it's still the case, but there was those who could write award-winning ads and then those who said they didn't work uh, and but probably couldn't write them uh, uh, in, in the majority of cases. Teddy is almost unique in that he was absolutely one of the best creative writers and then turned to uh, uh, to doing styles that were the opposite of that, but still very good. And he did it with the client in mind. You know, he said, well, okay, what's best for the client? Maybe I shouldn't do this clever ad. Maybe I should do an ad that's more strategically sound. And, and he's quite unique in my view that of being able to do both styles very, very well. And then Singo, Singo is probably the brightest guy I've met in advertising. And uh, just uh, absolutely fascinating guy. My experience of him is a very decent person. Uh, I, uh, he was always honourable to, to me. I sold my agency to, to, to Singo, one of my agencies to Singo, and, um, and he was absolutely fascinating. And people in the industry might, might find this interesting. When we, outside Singleton's, when it was the absolute juggernaut of new business, People always assumed, well, they, that, they must have such a sophisticated new business machine. I always thought that. And when I finally went in there, because I was on a two-year uh, uh, deal, I walked in there and there was no new business uh, machine at all. It was just the cult of personality that Singo, everybody just wanted to give him work. And he knew everybody from the richest in Australia, very good friends with Kerry Packer, very good friends, um, and, and James and everybody else. He just knew everybody. And everybody wanted to work with him, and, and, and that was how he grew the business. Uh, somebody who I was researching, I think you might be able to guess, said I should ask you this question. Who is the Marvel? <laughs> it's Teddy. It's Ted Horton. So this stemmed from 
when I was a junior writer and George Betts, a, a great friend of mine, we were both junior writers. And Ted was, of course, the kind of senior writer. And we were, he, he, he'd come around to the agency and he'd say, uh, uh, I'm a Marvel and you guys are the junior Marvels. You know, one day you'll be a Marvel like me, you know, all tongue in cheek. <laughs> but 30 years later, we still call him the Marvel. And he is the Marvel. And he, he, he rightfully takes that uh, throne. Well, I'm hoping we'll have Ted on uh, on the Mumbrella cast before too long as well. Now, um, you spend a, f- a fair bit of your time now as a as a sort of mentor of business people and entrepreneurs. Um, how uh, how do you approach that? Yeah, interesting question. Uh, so, yeah, I do a lot of mentoring. So, I me- I, I, I mentor when they wanted the the guys from DPR, the the Melbourne agency, which is which is doing so well. Um, I mentor startup entrepreneurs. And I also mentor, uh, you know, larger entrepreneurs, you know, as, as big as uh, turning over over a billion a year, uh, uh, Aussie entrepreneurs. And um, it's absolutely fascinating because uh, it's intimate. You know, you, I, I do everything on, on Zoom or, uh, but for one client. I, I do it all on Zoom and have done for 12 years. But you get to really know these people really closely. You know, they, they level with you what's happening in their company and the problems they're happening and ha- uh, happening. And w- we deal in, in two things. The, the, the first is how to, how to grow the company faster. And, but the second is for themselves, you know, to reduce stress, a lot of them under huge stress or to use their time better or, or just to, you know, be reflective of, of their life. Because as you know, you know, you've built an, uh, you know, a premier media company. You, you're just incredibly uh, endlessly doing tasks you could easily work seven days a week 24 hours a day and not complete your to-do list as as an entrepreneur of a fast-growing company so uh it that becomes it becomes very rare to reflect on your on your performance and and that's part of what i do as a mentor and do you um do you help them in sort of setting the goals and then helping hold them to account you know is it one of those things they're sort of thinking oh I've got my catch up with Simon tomorrow. I better get this done. Absolutely. Yeah, there is no doubt that half the half the homework we do is done the day before that they've got to meet with me. And and I don't think there's anyone, certainly myself included, but I don't think there's anyone that doesn't get better with coaching. You know, you you look at uh uh, uh guys like uh the chairman of, of of Google until recently. He had a coach. Steve Jobs had a coach. You know, uh um uh, the head of Ford, Alan Mulally, had a coach. Obama had had a leadership coach, Marshall Goldsmith. You know, the, any uh, people at the top, it doesn't matter how good they are, you get better by being co- held accountable, as as you said. And uh, we all rise when when we have to answer to someone, and and someone uh, holds a mirror to us uh, as as well. And you know, as Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. And, uh, you know, while I wouldn't go that far, it's certainly uh, a lower level of life. And, and so I, I'm a huge believer in mentors uh, in every category of life. And something you mentioned uh, earlier when you stepped away from Photon, one of the things you did in the time shortly afterwards was writing a book. And I, I know you've, you've, you've written a few. What is it that attracts you to the discipline, if it is the discipline, of writing books? Well, I kind of began to move away from being a copywriter. You know, in, in, I would rarely write ads. And so uh, I, 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 I like writing and I like 
are writing about one subject, which is stuff that interests me. And what interests me most is personal development, human development. What's the, what's the ability for someone to become greater than they were? And, you know, that's, uh, for me, often really sobering. Am I the person I should be? Am I the person I could be? And, and it's, it's just a fascination for me how some people start with nothing and end up having achieved great things. And I'm not just talking materially uh, as characters. They, they might become amazingly strong and, and beautiful characters or, yes, they might make money or they might have a skill set that might be, you know, succinct, like playing the cello or something. But greatness, human greatness is just an amazingly uh, fascinating subject for me. And to write about that is, is great because you get to be the researcher and then you just basically uh, write about stuff that you you learned and so i only ever write about one subject which is how to be better and um i suppose something i i, I found myself thinking about now and we're going to have this conversation was as i've alluded to the fact that you've got both the business brain and the creative brain um it seems like such a waste not having you running your own agency is it <laughs> is are those days definitely behind you or have you got one more in you do you think <laughs> Well, you know, it's always possible. You know, anyone's going to the office, send them. Um, look, I tell you what I find just bizarre about advertising and certainly Australian advertising is, you know, I'm in my 50s and I hear, I'm okay because I just open my own agencies, right? But I hear so many stories about really good people hitting 50 and people not wanting to employ them. And uh, uh, apart from the ethics of that, uh, I just think it's so dumb because, you know, people in, in their 50s have got so much wisdom and they've got experience and they're, they're just their playbook is so strong on, on how to solve problems. And, and they're also not dicks. You know, a lot of people, maybe my, even myself, you know, when, when we're young and we're arrogant and we haven't been hammered a million times by by the fickle fate of failure, um, you know, we, they've got a kind of level of confidence, stroke overconfidence, and uh, which is great. But the thing about someone in their 50s is, is, is they're often really uh, uh, good characters all around. Not, not always, but, but good characters all around. And they should be running agencies. They should be uh, opening their own agencies. And I think they're, uh, a lot of them are spooked by by the fact that that uh, they're not valued as much as they should be, I, I think it's crazy. Look at David Abbott as an example. In his last year uh, in England, Abbott Mead Vickers, which by then had become the number one sized agency in England and the number one award winning agency. Now I don't know how many people have ever achieved that. Uh, number one in both categories. He was age sixty, and he still won the Gold One Show that year. For, for best ad and and then retired and and look if the guy can do it at 60 he could have done it at 70 but in so many people are being written off just because they're 50 i think it's crazy and just to follow up something you said i'm not i'm not sure if you were just joking or not when you said give you a call are you serious is there is there an offer that could come out to you that might persuade you to to run another agency well here's the thing uh, I'm a big fan of the uh, economist John Kay, who, who wrote a book called Obliquity. And Obliquity is all based on the fact that people usually end up getting somewhere by a method they didn't expect. 
And there's, he's got the incredible case studies of companies that were intending to do something and they ended up doing something else, right? So I, the most important thing, I think, is to be open to anything, anything at all. So, you know, if someone said, I, I want to open a, a, a candy store, I'd, I'd listen to it because, uh, you know, who knows whether that's going to take me to someplace extraordinary. So I'm definitely uh, open to anybody saying they want to ha- open an ad agency. But I will say this, it's not something I'm thinking about. You mentioned you're in your 50s. You look a lot younger. You obviously look after yourself. Do you live a disciplined lifestyle? Well, I, I used not to, but then I got married and got kids. So it's uh, it's basically uh, feed them and go to bed. You know, it's the exhaustion is my main uh, uh, driver of my lifestyle. Um, but oh, look, it's uh, you know I do a bit of exercise. I, I do a lot of stress reduction. So I, I use a technique. Um, it's a great book called uh, the Sedona Method, uh, which is a kind of forty year old method of reducing stress, which I do a lot. Which is just basically during the day. Just release the stress that's building up rather than wait for weeks and, and then have a massage every three months or whatever in the hope of, of re- reducing it. So I reduce stress a lot. Um, I, I work on my mind a lot. One of my, one of my passions is um, uh, uh, elite uh, mental sports uh, psychology. So, uh, you know, I study, mo- they're, they're mostly uh, Americans. Uh, uh, you know, the, who are the people that, that are inside LeBron James's head keeping him in, in great mental condition or, you know, the Utah Jazz or, or, or you know, any of these um, great sporting institutions in, in America, they've, a lot of them have got mind coaches. And so I, I, it's a bit of a hobby of mine to try and learn the techniques of those people because people will say, well, what's that got to do with, say, being in advertising or whatever? Well, a lot. You know, we're, if we're, we're under stress all the time, and we still have to perform, just like they're under stress all the time, and they really have to perform. So I do a kind of lot of stuff, uh, yeah, a bit of exercise, but a lot of stuff with the mind. And I think, long way of answering your question, I think that keeps me healthier uh, than, than the average. Now, people who know you do talk about the fact that you always have a positive outlook and that you don't seem to experience self-doubt. Is that where that comes from? Is it these techniques? Um, well, first of all, I, I am uh, often doubting myself and often not having the self-confidence that I think I, um, we all should have. Um, you know, there's a great saying of the Canadian uh, business coach, Dan Sullivan. He, he says, never judge your, uh, never compare your backstage to someone else's front stage. So my front stage may look to some people like, uh, you know, it's uh, uh, everything's great. And, and I don't want to say that, Life isn't isn't really good, but um, yeah, I fall down all all the time, doubting myself compared to what I think I should, or not being the person that I think I I, I should be. But I do agree with you that uh, learning these techniques of you know mental performance uh, is enormously helpful. And I work on it every day. I probably spend 20, 30 minutes a day making sure my mind's in 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 good shape and. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that uh, confidence, if you look at, you know, a lot of the studies on, on elite sports people, uh, confidence is the uh, fastest variable. So if, if they want to get an athlete to perform better, they increase their confidence. That will do it more than anything else. And I think it's absolutely crazy that in business, in marketing services, you know, here we are running companies, but, but we're not keeping ourselves mind fit 
even though we need confidence as much as any uh, elite baseballer. Uh, we need uh, uh, persistence as, as much as any uh, sportsman. We, ne- we need um, uh, optimism as, as much as uh, uh, any, uh, say, Navy SEAL. And, and they, they, they work on all these mental techniques as well. And I think, I always like to ask myself this, in 50 years' time, what are people in our field going to be doing? And I think in 50 years' time, they're going to be working on their mind as much as they're working on, on, on their business because the two are really correlated. You have had your setbacks as well. And I know one that you've, you've, you've talked about in the past, and I guess it was famous at the time, was losing your, your job as creative director at a very young age. Um, and it's, I mean, it was, it was many years before I, certainly I came to Australia, but as far as I can tell, it was an enduring mystery. To, to this day, have you ever been able to get to the bottom of why you lost that job? No, no, abs- absolutely not. Now, that doesn't mean I didn't deserve to get sacked because for people who are you know, not 510 like myself, um, basically I became a creative director at, at 21. And uh, it was in all the news. It was on a current affair. It was in BRW as the you know, as top, top you know, 20 moves of the, in Australian business, business. It was a big, big deal. And uh, while I was there, I did the AIDS ad, et cetera, et cetera. And I got sacked about a year and a half later. And the guy, the managing director, uh, Gary Murphy, um, rang me. Uh, I was actually judging the TV awards, in, and he didn't even do it in person. He said, uh, I, look, I don't think it's working out. I think, don't think you should come back to the uh, agency. And, you know, if I was an adult, uh, like, you know, like if I had been in the industry a bit longer, I, w- I would have kind of taken him up o- on this and been more confronting. But, uh, you know, I didn't know what to do. And, um, and yeah, to this day, I don't know why I was sacked. Uh, we only did three business pitches. We won two. We went from nowhere in the awards to uh, somewhere in the awards. Um, I don't know. I don't know what it was. And unfortunately, he died two years ago because I, ban- I went to LinkedIn to look him up. And really just to say to, uh, uh, two things. First of all, thank you for giving me the chance because, you know, it's 30 years later. Um, I, 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 you know, I, I don't feel any, any kind of malice towards him. Um, but also to say, hey, can you just tell me? I'm totally cool about it. But why did you, you sack me? But uh, unfortunately, he's uh, he's left the world. Well, looking uh, looking forward. Obviously, we talked about the buyer's circle. Um, what else is exciting you? You know what? I, I'm I'm mentoring a, a um, quite a, quite a few people, and in, in in some cases, I've got stakes in in the company. And uh, uh, in in the advertising world, what DPR is doing, I'm really excited. Um, you know, they're phenomenal. Uh, what they're doing. Uh, I'm doing a lot of stuff in um, agricultural biotech at the moment. Uh, yeah, I, 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 working closely with a company called VRM Biologic, which is very big in China, but uh, not yet big in, in the West. Um, so I'm, you know, definitely with the tech feel, uh, but not kind of classic uh, tech, more kind of weird stuff that uh, not everybody's looking at. Well, Simon, thank you very much for your time. Really enjoyed it. Thanks so much, Tim. It's it's an honour to meet you uh, after all you've achieved. That was Simon Reynolds, Chair of Social E-Commerce Platform Buyer's Circle, speaking to Mumbrella founder and editor-at-large, Tim Burrows. Don't forget to listen out on Thursday for the next Mumbrella cast with latest news and reporter Xander Wilson speaking to the Braggs' Luke Gerges. I'm Damien Francis. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 